Hey, everybody. I want to wish a happy Father's Day to all of the dads and to everyone. In fact, if you'll wait till the end of the service, stick with us. We'd like to pray for dads. And because all of us had a dad, whether we knew them or not, whatever the relationship, we want to pray for all of us. So stick around. And I want to remind you that um, there is a, a recorded conversation that of three white pastors and three black pastors that will become available. We think it will be Tuesday afternoon. Uh, you can just check on YouTube for Pastors Talk About Race Part 2. So I hope that you'll join, that, uh, join us with that. There are experiences that words just can't describe. Uh, and no matter how much you stretch language, it just doesn't describe what happens. For example, when a young man stands at uh, the, the, in front of his family and his friends and looks and his bride comes in the back door and he whispers, wow, <laughs> words can't describe that. Or when a man becomes a dad, a father, and he holds his newborn for the first time, unforgettable. Um, when, a, when a man holds his first grandchild, I remember when our first grandchild was born and uh, I did not know I had the capacity of love that, that I had. In fact, I told people after our grandchild was born, this is the first kid born since Jesus without sin. And then when he turned two, I said, this kid needs Jesus in the worst way. So there are those experiences that words can't stretch and they just don't work. I saw a video of a child sitting on Santa's lap. Santa said, what do you want for Christmas? And he said, I want my daddy to come home. See, he'd been deployed in, in the military. And then the video panned to the back of Santa's chair where his dad was sitting there waiting and he came out, the look on that little child's face and the look on dad's face. Words cannot describe that. When a teenager first gets his driver's license, um, when your team wins a championship, uh, when you run your first half marathon or, or, or marathon, those are experiences that you just can't describe in words. Uh, I, was in, um, I was in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, standing in the lobby, waiting to come back home, standing with some friends. We had already checked in. And a, a man in a business suit walked up to me and quietly whispered, Tengo el paquete. I have the package. And I looked at him and I said, Que paquete? What package? And he looked at me and he said, Usted es la CIA, no? Aren't you CIA? And I went, no. And he took off running. <laughs> I've always wondered what was in that package that he was going to hand to me. Well, we're going to look at uh, an experience that the followers of Jesus had that language cannot stretch to describe. It's found in Mark chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, hope that wherever you are, you'll go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 9. Get on your phone, tablet, whatever you have. And let me set this up. The disciples had a problem. And I think it's the same kind of problem many of us have. And that is they underestimated who Jesus was. And because of that, it shaped the way they thought and the way they acted, the way they, they lived. Jesus chose 12 men and he trained them to pick up the work of the kingdom 
And he did it in two ways. He would expose them to situations that were beyond their strength or wisdom or courage, required more resources than they had, and then he would display his glory, resolve the situation to, to teach them that he was adequate. But they never seemed to catch it. In fact, when they should have been prepared, they were not prepared. When they should have had peace, they had fear. When they should have had faith, they had doubt. Or let me put it in a different way. They had a glory problem. Other glories had captured their heart. And those glories can never quite fill us. They underestimated the glory of Jesus. And so he is going to create a situation where his glory will be revealed and their lives would never quite be the same after that took place. I think the same thing happens to us. I think part of the reason we live with fear or boredom or we're passive or we doubt is we underestimate who Jesus is. We have a glory problem. We have competing glories in our heart. And um, we need to see the glory of Jesus. And I think that's one of the reasons we struggle with some things like we do. So let's look in, in the book of Mark, chapter 9, and watch a situation that words absolutely cannot describe. Uh, verse 1 says this, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what is he talking about here? It, it, it sounds like he's talking about the second coming. And if we're Christians, we expect, we know that someday Jesus will return and he is going to set things right and he's going to eliminate evil and he's going to reign over a restored kingdom and we will be with him. Uh, we believe that, and we look for that. The problem is, Jesus said some of the people standing there would not die until they saw the kingdom of God come in power. All of them had died 2,000 years ago, and Jesus still has not returned. So apparently he's not talking about the second coming. Maybe he's talking about the resurrection. If there was ever a display of power, and those disciples saw the risen Christ... And his resurrection was a preview of what is going to happen to us. Maybe he was talking about that. Or maybe he was talking about the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and 3,000 people were saved in one day. Talk about a display of power and the kingdom coming with power. Or maybe he was talking about what happens in the book of Acts when the disciples went out, the followers of Jesus, and they preached, they declared the gospel, and people's lives were turned around and changed, and the kingdom of God came with power. Well, Mark gives us a hint about what Jesus is referring to in verse 2. It says this, after six days, if you read the Gospels carefully, what you'll notice is they're often not in chronological order. The story of Jesus can is often arranged um, topically or thematically. And Mark is especially like that. And when Mark gives a time reference, that is significant. So the question is, six days after what? What happened six days before? And he tells us, John described it last week when he preached, Jesus has, has declared, I am the Messiah. He affirmed Peter. 
And then he said, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die and rise again. And on top of that, to make it worse, he says, and if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross to, to follow me. And that was not what the disciples wanted to hear. Uh, they knew the Old Testament. They knew what the prophecies of the Messiah dealt with, that he would come and reign in power. And they had seen people hanging on crosses. That was a fairly common sight at this time. And when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, and he begins to talk about suffering and self-denial, uh, I, think, I think it sent them in shock. I, I, they could not absorb it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This was not what they signed up for. And I think the same thing happens to us. When we hear Jesus say suffering is a normative part of the Christian life. In this world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Many of us, that doesn't compute at all. I mean, we're king's kids. This ought to be easy. Uh, Jesus is supposed to erase all the problems. And when we hear him talk about suffering, pressure, and sometimes rejection, and when we hear him say, you are to follow me no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what, how it stretches you, we think, it's not supposed to be this way. So for six days, they're trying to absorb what Jesus has just described. And then he says, and by the way, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God come in power before you die. They needed encouragement. They needed to know they were not crazy for following Jesus. I think the same thing happens to us. In a time like we're in right now, and this pandemic continues on, and we live with where we, where we are, we really just need encouragement. We, we have a glory hunger. And so what we're about to read is designed to fill that hunger and designed to encourage us that we are not crazy for following Jesus. We're not crazy for denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. So let's pick it up in verse 2. It says, After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them, and His clothing became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to Him Elijah, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So Jesus takes his disciples up on a high mountain. If this was Mount Hermon, it's 9,200 feet above sea level. Above the Sea of Galilee, it's almost 1,200 feet, 12,000 feet. If you've ever climbed a high mountain, it's a lot of work. And uh, when they arrived, it was nighttime. And Jesus wants to pray. He tells them that's the reason. And the disciples are sleepy, and then all of a sudden they are wide awake because something is happening to Jesus. It's like He is shining out 
bright light. In fact, the word transfigured, transfiguration is used. It comes from a Greek word metamorphosis that's used of radical change. It describes a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You never would expect that. And he's changing in, in front of their eyes. It says his clothing is so white, it's like he's shining through his clothing. It says no launderer could bleach his clothing that white. No amount of Clorox today could make them that white. Uh, and Matthew says his face was shining like the sun. So it, the night is lit up. The stars are vanishing because of the glory, the light shining out of the face of Jesus. Now what is happening? He is revealing what he's really like. It's like the curtain, like a, a blinds has been drawn and what has been there all the time is is bursting out in light and glory. Uh, he, he is showing that the little baby born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, really is something beyond anything they've ever expected from all of eternity. And it's a preview of what we're going to see someday. And this answers the question that has been asked over and over and over in the book of Mark, and that is this. Who is this guy? How can he do what he's doing? For example, in chapter 1, Jesus cast demons out of a man, and Mark 1.27 says, people said, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Moving to chapter 2, Jesus heals this paralyzed man, forgives him of his sins, and in chapter 2, verse 12, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And in chapter 4, he's he calms down this storm, tells the waves to lie down, tells the wind to stop. And chapter 4, verse 41, the disciples say they, it was, they were filled with fear and they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's the big question in Mark. Who is he? How can he do what he is doing? And now Jesus is answering that question. I'm really a man, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, 100% man, and he is God, fully God as if he were not man at all. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe with the word of his power. And Colossians 2.9 says in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So Jesus is displaying His glory. What an experience. What an encouragement. They, those guys needed to see that no matter how hard it was, He's hanging on a cross, and they're hiding in fear. No matter how hard life would be, they need to, to know He is still glorious. He is still God. He is still upholding the universe with the word of His power. He is a million times more brilliant than a million Einsteins. He is 10,000 times more powerful than all the atomic weapons. He's bigger. He's greater. He's wiser. He's smarter than anyone has ever known. They needed to know that. So just try to picture this moment. Peter and James and John, they're stunned by the glory of Jesus. They've been jolted. Uh, beyond anything that, that they thought. Maybe they're falling down, and suddenly they realize 
There's somebody else here on this mountaintop with them. They're not alone. Verse 4 says, they saw Moses and Elijah standing there. And you want to say, okay, these are two of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament. Uh, Moses, the great uh, leader. Uh, Elijah, the, the great prophet. But why these two? I mean, there are other great people in the Old Testament. Why not David? Why not um, Daniel? Why not uh, Abraham? Why not Jeremiah? And I think there are probably a, a couple of reasons. Both Moses and Elijah had experiences with God on a mountaintop. Both of them had seen the glory of God before. Both of them had talked about the glory of God. In fact, Moses, at one point, his face was shining, reflected glory. And Elijah went up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Both of their lives ended in a really unusual way. Moses died. God, God took his life and buried him where nobody could find the grave at all. And Elijah never died at all. Went up with chariots, a chariot of fire and horses of fire. But I think there's something even more. The last book of the Bible, in the last book of, of the Old Testament is Malachi. And in the last chapter of the last book before 400 years of silence, that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the last thing God would say is this, Malachi 4, 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the Old Testament is ending. God gives a command to His people. Now be faithful, and He makes them a promise. I'm going to come with, with a future day of salvation. And He mentions two people, Moses and Elijah. And there they are talking to Jesus. And what are they talking about? Well, Luke, the way Luke tells the story, they're talking about His departure. It's the Greek word exodus, exodal, his, his, his exodus. And by sending these two, God is saying this. There was an exodus that took place, and it set physical slaves free. But there is another exodus, and I'm going to set slaves free from spiritual death, spiritual sin, from hell itself. All that Moses represents, the law, the sacrifices, they've all been fulfilled in Jesus. And all that Elijah represents, all of the prophecies, they're hungering for Jesus. Everything in history is moving to one point, the coming of Jesus. It's like God puts a stamp of, a, of a, an exclamation point on what has just taken place. I mean, what a moment. I wonder how you would have responded. Just words can't be stretched to describe this. Well, you have to love Peter. <laughs> Verse 5 says this, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And you scratch your head and go, what does that mean? I, I don't know. I don't think Peter knew because verse 6 says, he did not know what to say for they were terrified. <laughs> when there was nothing to be said, Peter spoke. Peter, not knowing what to say, spoke. Uh, <laughs> some of us are like that. Uh, and it really makes no sense. We're going to make, let's camp out on this mountain and, and we'll get three tents and, and I'll stay with Jesus and, and you stay with Moses and you stay. It's just nonsense. You know, 
Some people, when they're terrified, and it does say they were afraid, they were terrified. Some people, when they're scared, get real quiet. Some people just start talking, and, and that's Peter. And if it sounds weird to you, it really is weird. He finds himself in the presence of Jesus like he has never seen him before. He's so bright, I can't look at him. And then he sees the two greatest people who ever lived, two of them, Moses and Elijah standing there um, talking to Jesus. I mean, who would not be afraid in that moment? There are times when the only appropriate emotion is fear. And the Bible talks about the fear of God. And what I'm afraid is that many of us have lost that sense of awe and respect and the fear of God. Modern Christianity has presented God as a, a, a kindly grandfather. Uh, he, he's my buddy. Um, he, he's, like, he's like Santa Claus, or he's this uh, stern um, uh, policeman, uh, or he's a compassionate therapist, rather than the sovereign God of all the universe who demands our submission that we bend the knee and we pour every energy that we have into serving Him, not just one day, but all of our life. And then it even gets more amazing. Verse 7 says, okay, there's glory bursting out of Jesus, and there's two of the greatest people who ever lived standing there, and they're talking with Him, and Peter's talking nonsense, and then a cloud rolls on to the mountaintop, and this booming voice, I, I, I think the I think they had to be just in. They st they're stunned. This booming voice speaks out of the cloud. You know, a cloud in the Bible is a symbol of the presence of God. When the Israelites were set free from Egypt, it was a cloud that guided them through the wilderness. When the tabernacle was built, a cloud filled the tabernacle. When the temple was built by Solomon, a cloud came in and drove everybody else out. And the New Testament says when Jesus returns, he is coming with the clouds. He's riding a cloud, and we will meet him in the clouds. It's a symbol of the presence of God called the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. And this booming voice calls out and speaks. And this is not the first time God has ever spoken from a cloud on a mountaintop. Exodus 24, 12 says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there. I'll give you the tablets of stone. These, these are the famous Ten Commandments, uh, which I've written for their instruction. So God has something really important to say to Moses, calls him up on the mountain. And Exodus 24, 15 says this, Then Moses went on the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. It's one of the most important moments in all of history. God is giving his Ten Commandments. He's saying, this is the way you follow me. This is how you live and serve to, to, to worship me. And it, it's doing it out of a cloud. And Mark 9 is pretty much the same thing, except this time God doesn't say, Listen to what I've written on tablets of stone. He says, listen to Jesus. Every time I look at him, he's the son that I love. Listen to him. Hear him. You want to follow me? You want to serve me? You want to honor me? Listen to my son. And then the cloud was gone. And Jesus, is, as he always appears, the glory is vanished. Moses and Elijah 
uh, they're gone. And it's just Jesus they see. And it's like God is saying, Moses was a great leader, and Elijah was a great prophet, but my son is so far superior to them. He's the only one you need to listen to. And friends, this is a fundamental of our faith. We do not believe that there are many religious guides in life that we can trust. We do not believe that Jesus is one of many religious leaders who can guide us to God. We do not believe there are different ways that you can climb the mountain to God. We believe there is one way, one truth, one life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. So we listen to Him. Verse 9 says, they were coming down the mountain, <laughs> and He charged them to tell no one what he, they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, and they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I don't think He really had to tell them that. I think they were in such shock. We're not about to try to explain this to anyone. We couldn't do that. And then they ask an Elijah question. They said, uh, verse 11, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first. And he said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I tell you, Elijah has come and they did so with him, whatever they pleased, and is it written of him. So they ask, well, I've heard Elijah's going to, and Jesus just uses this opportunity to once again say, they're going to treat me like dirt, just like they treated Elijah, just like they treated John the Baptist who represented Elijah and I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Why is this story here? What does it leave us with? I think it leaves us with two things. We need to see the glory of Jesus because we really do tend to underestimate who He is, and our hearts can be captured by other glories. Sometimes it's the glory of having some important person in your life accept you and respect you and you live for that and if that doesn't happen you're sad and you wonder if life is even worth living and you give everything into getting the glory of having someone uh, respect you it could be the glory of a job or the glory of having enough money to do whatever you want or the glory of some achievement or the glory of of comfort or the glory from your children or, or your family and we live with glory hunger because those don't satisfy and the only way our hearts can be rescued from competing glories is by a greater glory, uh, the glory of Jesus. And what happens when you think about the glory of Jesus? Well, 2 Corinthians 3 says this, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's the same word metamorphosis, the very same word being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, we become what we behold. And when you and I think about and remember and dwell on the glory of Jesus, something of His character, His life, His love begins to grow in us transforms the way we think and the way we feel and what we believe, how we act, how we worship. You need a glorious Savior, and you need a suffering Savior. You need a Savior who is tempted in every way like you are. You need one who is approachable. You need 
a Savior who understands the harsh realities of living in a broken world. You need a Savior who understands what it is to be mistreated and rejected and hurt. You need a glorious Savior, and you need a suffering Savior. You know why you can face tomorrow? Do you know why you can get up and go to a job you don't like? Or you can get up one more time, pound the streets, make the calls, send the, the resumes, trying to find a job? Do you know why you can live with family members you don't get along with? You know, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. Do you know why you can live with a continuing debilitating disease? You don't look to tomorrow. You look to the day after tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day when you will finally stand before Jesus and see His glory as it really is, and you will know it has been worth it to follow Him. You have not wasted your life. You're not crazy for trusting Him. You need to see the glory of Jesus again. And here's the second thing. You need to listen to Him. That's what the voice said uh, from the mountain. If you're a Christian, then you have a high value of listening to Jesus because He has so much to offer. What He speaks is truth. Now, we live in a world where someone says, well, that's your truth, and that's your truth, and I have my own truth, and that's scary because everything's subjective, and what if your truth is something that harms me or harms you? And Jesus speaks truth, and He is the only way to hear from God. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. In other words, all through history God spoke in a lot of different ways. Now you want to know God, listen to Jesus. What a joy to listen to someone who just speaks truth. Peter was once asked by Jesus, are you going to leave me too? He said, where else are we going to go? You, the only one that you have the words of, of eternal life. You're the only one who knows where to find life. Because he died, rose again, we can be forgiven, we can have hope that we too will live forever. So, the big question that I want to end with is this We're not on the mountain. How do you listen to Jesus? How do you listen to his word? And I want you to hear back to Peter. What Peter says in the last thing he wrote, 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells Christians who have never seen Jesus how to listen to him. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he says, We're not telling a myth. We saw him. Then verse 17, 2 Peter 1 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's recalling and remembering. That's, we were there. I'm telling you what happened. And then the very next verse, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Do you hear what he's saying? James and John and I, we were on that mountain. What a privilege. But you don't have to be on a mountain and hear an audible voice to listen to He says, you have the, the 
prophetic word. You have something right here in front of you shining like a lamp in the darkness until the morning star rises in your heart. You have the Bible and all of the Bible witnesses to Jesus, uh, to see his glory, and to listen to him. It all points toward him. It is all about him. So here's the question. What are you going to do this week to get the voice of Jesus in your life? Because he doesn't reject you when you come asking. He's got the answers to the most technical questions, the most difficult questions, and he's willing to share them. What do you, because if you're a follower of Christ, you listen to him. That's what we do. Thank you.